Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Mark McGinnis. Mark is an award-winning poet based in Bristol, United Kingdom. On his podcast, A Mouthful of Air, he interviews contemporary poets about the writing process behind their poems. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. Absolutely. I'm glad you're here. Could I ask you if you could read one of your poems for us? Sure. So this is a sonnet, and it is called Chrysalis, as in the um, the transformative process between a caterpillar and a butterfly. And this is in the voice of uh, the butterfly looking back on that process. Chrysalis. The hard part isn't spinning my own shroud to cover me from head to toes to toes, then waiting for my dozen eyes to cloud, my segments to collapse like dominoes. Yet neither is it fetid dissolution, my liquidized flesh, my petrifying shell, or the agonizing slow reconstitution from serpent into angel via gel. The hard part isn't being born again inside a wrapper like a folded kite, unfolding and assembling struts and stems, or hoisting the whole contraption into flight. The hardest part is where it all begins, relinquishing legs for fantasies of wings. That's great. I'm curious, do you remember the impetus that drove you to write that poem? Yes, I do very clearly, this one. Um, no, it's not always as dramatic as this, but actually this one was, it kind of came to me in the middle of the night. Um, I remember it was almost, I was, it was one of those, it was like a dream that was so vivid that I wasn't sure if I was awake or asleep. And it was almost like this, the image of this this entity that was speaking to me it was almost like it was coming through the ceiling um and i wish i could say poetry was always this dramatic but it's not but on this occasion it was and it was you know looking back it was a time when i was going through a process of big change in my work and in my life and and so i don't think it's rocket science to you know to to see the the parallels between the you know the transform transformation from the caterpillar into the butterfly. Um, but having said that, you know, it didn't arrive fully formed. Um, I had the basic idea and I kind of knew it would be a sonnet, but it took quite a lot of drafts before I got it into this current form. Well, I'm curious, what was your own personal writing journey that led you to your interest in writing poetry and then led to your podcast? where you interview poets? It depends how far back you want to go. I mean, I can remember <laughs> being entranced by nursery rhymes and children's verse, nonsense verse, when I was really small. In fact, one of the poems that I, one of the first poems I've read on the podcast, on the podcast is The Jumblies by Edward Lear. You know, they went to see in a sieve the did, in a sieve they went to see. And, um, you know, because I remember that, I was obsessed by that when I was really quite small. Um, and then when I was a teenager, I think that was the point where I got seriously interested in poetry. I think, I think 
what we would call secondary school, maybe your listeners might call high school, is is almost like the the, the fork in the road if people love or hate poetry. I think a lot of people <laughs> get put off. But I was really lucky. I had two wonderful English teachers, Sue Dove and Jeff Riley. And we would spend a whole lesson looking at one or two poems. And I was just spellbound by the fact that you could look at this little block of text and you could spend an hour looking at it and talking about it and you would still be finding new things at the end of the hour because because the language was so concentrated that that and that was the point where I started writing and they were encouraging me to to write and I thought okay this is what I want to do um but that's a long time there's a long gap between that and you know the the reading and the writing that I've done over the years to get to the point where I launched the podcast last year. And I think, you know, there were several things that went into the podcast. One of them was, you know, I was approaching 50, which is always a point where I think one <laughs> one takes stock and looks up and thinks, well, what am I doing or what have I done with my life? And one of the things I noticed, I've got this behind me, I've got these several bookshelves full of poetry that are my my treasure if you like my um uh, my memory bank and i thought you know isn't it a shame if it just stops with me if i read all those poems and i enjoy them but you know i, I just had this urge to to take some books down from the shelf and start reading them and sharing them and you know I th- touching on the fact that a lot of people get put off poetry early in life or they think it's not for them or this it's this thing that's up on the pedestal unsurprisingly most of the time I am the person in my group of friends or my my social circle who I'm the one who reads poetry because most people don't and I, but I think it's it's not that hard for people to get it it's not it really isn't an academic subject. I know they tried to turn it into one, but mm-hmm. it's, that's not where poetry came from. And I just think, you know, if I could take a poem down from the shelf and read it and say to people, look, isn't this wonderful? Like, have you noticed what, what the poet's done here? And, and how do you feel when you hear that? And, and really just get people to trust their own response to the poem and hopefully to, to get some of the pleasure and the sustenance that I get from the poems. So that was one um, one big spark for the podcast. I think another one was spending years and years sitting beside other poets in classes and hearing so many wonderful poems. You know, I would often go to Mimi Calvati, um, my long-term mentor, I'd go to her writing workshop or... Um, uh, and just be listening to poem after poem and thinking, what a wonderful evening entertainment I'm getting from all these people around the table. And I thought, you know, this should be more widely known, you know. So at this point, I know quite a lot of poets. And um, I think it's a challenge for all of us to break out of that poetry bubble, that poetry circle, the, you know, the, the people who read and write. There's a very high percentage of poetry readers are also writers. And I just thought, well, what I would love to do is invite some of these poets onto the show, get them to read a poem, and then I will ask them some questions about it. So, you know, if if I'm doing a Shakespeare sonnet that I can't really ask him, I have to kind of make it up myself. But if it's a contemporary poet, I get them to read a poem and then I'll ask them, you know, well, same question you asked me, actually. 
where did this poem come from? And then how did it evolve um, during the writing process? So it's, and I think what that, what you end up with because of these two sources on the podcast is, is something old, something new. You get a lot of traditional classic poems that I'm reading, and then we get the cutting edge contemporary work um, from the guest poets. That's great. Well, what do you what do you think novelists or short story writers can gain from either reading poetry or writing their own poems? So Stephen Pressfield had a really great piece on his blog a few years ago where he said most writers are in their heart of hearts, they're either story smiths or wordsmiths. And I think my impression is that a lot of novelists, they're more likely to be story smiths at heart. Um, certainly more than the poets. I mean, <laughs> I could name names, but some poets, they write what are supposed to be long narrative poems. And it's like, well, okay, but where is the story? So, you know, the, there's something that poets can certainly learn, I think, from novelists about story smithing, about narrative structure, character arc, um, plot development, and so on. But I think an obvious you know, corollary of that is poets tend to be the wordsmiths. We're the ones obsessed by finding the right word or, or even the right punctuation mark on a particular line. And we will take it out and put it in and take it out and put it in <laughs> and, and just tweak it and tweak it and tweak it for years, which is really how I write poems. And most poets I know, that's generally how they work. So I think probably the, the obvious answer is that close attention to language, which you know, ideally, I think what we're all looking for is to be the the wordsmith and the story smith, or the you know g good at the detail and the the bigger picture and the bigger structure. So, I would say, and it's certainly one thing I try and do on the podcast is really get people to listen to the the actual words that a poet uses and the rhythm of the word, the sound of the word, the feeling, the cadence. Um, because if you can combine that, you know, that, that's what will draw a, a reader in to a, say an individual scene is the texture of the language. But obviously, and if you can combine that with a, with a compelling, you know, a, a good yarn, a, a, a compelling plot, then you can have such a powerful book, I think. That's great. Um, I'm curious, what is method writing and can you explain how that works? Well, this is a, a a term that came up in one of the interviews with uh, a poet called Shazia Qureshi, who wrote a poem called "The Taxidermist," and it includes some some pretty graphic descriptions of taxidermy um, on a on a mouse and also a, a hummingbird. I think there may be some other creatures in there as well. And I naively said to Shazia, so, well, you know, this seems awfully realistic, these descriptions of taxidermy. How, how on earth did you manage to get it so, so accurate? And she said, well, I, I signed up for a taxidermy course. And, and I went and did some. <laughs> and, I mean, I should stress, Shazia was, was very clear that apparently there is a thing called ethical taxidermy and even ethical feminist taxidermy where people are very... Um, careful to make sure that nobody's going out and shooting and killing um, live creatures in order to, to to taxiderm them. I don't know if that's the right use of the verb. Um, <laughs> so it's got to be that it died a natural death. It was found, you know, it, it, you know, so that there's no kind of ethical issue around that. Um, 
But that said, you know, and also Shazia said that when she she took the course, she realized and she looked into this field, there's a there's a whole field of art taxidermy. And what she discovered is that you know, in I guess the feminist aspect comes from the old idea that, you know, it's it's slightly patriarchal, imperialist, you know, chaps in pith helmets going out from Britain and shooting big things and <laughs> putting them up on the wall. And apparently the feminist artistic take on it is it's more about, I think Shazia had a lovely line in one of her poems about honouring these brief lives, which was such a, a beautiful phrase, I thought. And so she said it's, it's actually, it's quite an unpleasant thing to do because it's basically butchery. Um, but what she got from that was a, a really fabulous poem sequence. Um, so sometimes, you know, you've, you know, and I was joking that this is method writing, a bit like Daniel Day Lewis's method acting. That if you're going to write about something, you 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 know, you've got to go and do it and live it. So, so I really admired her commitment on that. I'm certainly not going to to follow her down that path. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. <laughs> well, well, some people have a desire to write, but they just can't seem to come up with ideas. I'm curious, are there free write or creativity exercises that you would recommend for someone to kind of free up their ideas and writing muscles? I think that, I mean, there are lots of them. I'm just talking my own personal experience. I never really get on very well with anything that's based around content. But weirdly enough, if you give me a form, to write in. If you say, oh, here's a, a an exotic troubadour form that we've just discovered with a with a strange rhyme scheme, then I'm going to be all over it because there's something about the technical challenge that makes it easier for me to just focus on on getting words on a page. And in a strange way, that seems to open the door to my kind of subconscious or my imagination that that's when the interesting stuff kind of comes in. So I, I think I would suggest think about writing in an unusual form. It doesn't have to be a poetic form. It could be... So Rowan Evans um, 
a wonderful poet from here in Bristol, where I live. He came on the podcast and he he brought a poem that he he said was a mixtape. And <laughs> I don't know if maybe some of your listeners may be too young to remember mixtapes, but back in the day, though, you know, the mixtape. Oh, I remember was, them. Okay, <laughs> right. So so you you can understand the cultural significance of that, right? So it's when you hear stuff on the radio and you 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 rush to the tape recorder and you when the first chords of it come along and you start recording it. Or you might do a tape to tape or record a, an LP and you create your own compilation. I guess the equivalent is the playlist now. And so this this poem is, is called it Cante Hondo Mixtape. So Cante Hondo was a poem by the Spanish poet Federico García Lorca. And it, it, it was a kind of a mashup of what Rowan had got from reading that poem, but also traveling on a train, mainly through Spain, and all the different impressions that he'd got. And he'd kind of just put them together in, in this very impressionistic uh, poem. One, one little scene after another, and he called it a mixtape. So, you know, maybe for a, a listener, if you're feeling stuck and you think, well, I'm not quite sure what to write about or what to get going on, maybe I will do a mixtape. I'll do a mixtape of the last year. I'll do a mixtape of the pandemic. I'll do a mixtape of, I don't know, my favorite moments from, from movies or, or, or other media. So, you know, what I would, you know, just, just think about maybe finding a form. It could be an obituary. It could be a recipe. It could be an instruction manual, something that you would never normally write in. And I, I would say, have a go at that because, you know, paradoxically, when you're focused on the form, when you're focused on the, the structure of the words, it's as though that little critical self-censoring guard can, can come down because it's distracted. And then that's when the, the interesting stuff can start to flow into the, into the writing. I'm curious, can you discuss the importance of embracing nonsense in writing? Well, you're talking to a poet, so nonsense is never far away, right? <laughs> I think, you know, so The Jumblies is um, the poem that, I, that I've used on the, um, on the podcast as an example of, of, of really great nonsense. So just so that we know where, where we are, this is the first verse. They went to sea in a sieve, they did. In a sieve, they went to sea. In spite of all their friends could say, on a winter's morn, on a stormy day, in a sieve, they went to sea. And when the sieve turned round and round, and everyone cried, you'll all be drowned, they called aloud, our sieve ain't big, but we don't care a button, we don't care a fig, in a sieve we'll go to sea. Far and few, far and few, are the lands where the jumblies live. Their heads are green and their hands are blue, and they went to sea in a sieve. Now, on one level, I, I, you know that clearly is nonsense. I mean, you can't go to a sea in a sieve, and um, you know what does it mean? You know, the heads are green and their hands are blue. What's what's going on there? But I think we can all pick up. Um, it's like a dance, you know, that it, it you get caught up in it. And you want to move, and 
it's a bit silly and it's a bit frivolous, but actually there's a real physical, first of all, there's a real physical pleasure, I think, in the rhythm, in the rhyme, in the beat of um, a poem like this. And you're letting go of the nonsense and, and, and that will take you away somewhere in your imagination that you couldn't get to logically. And, you know, even though it's obviously complete nonsense, I think maybe as creatives we can, we can relate to this because if you're a writer, I think really you, you're always going to see in a sieve. You know, <laughs> it, it, certainly if you think about the financial implications of it, but even if you just think about the, the imaginative thing, it's so daunting. The sea is so wide. So many people have already done so much. And yet I, I have the temerity to think that in my little sieve, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to cross that ocean and, and I'm going to discover something amazing and bring it back and I won't be drowned. And, you know, that call to adventure I think is really what this poem is about. And I, th you know, it can wake up that, that adventurous part of us that maybe we remember from childhood. And that I think is still there for us as adults. If we're not, you know, if we don't take ourselves so seriously that we wouldn't, you know, bend over and cross the threshold and read a poem like this. That's great. Well, what writing advice would you offer for listeners who may be working on their own poems or novels or short stories? Um, the first thing is, is an obvious thing, which is read, read, read lots of what you do. What, the thing that you want to write, read as much of that as you can. So a recent example of that was I'm working on my poetry collection and I realized I wanted a ballad in that collection. And so the, the Jumblies, which I've just read, is a basically a ballad meter that Leah is using there. And I wanted a poem a bit like that, and I had no idea what it would be about. So I just trusted my unconscious. I got a big anthology of ballads, the Faber Book of Ballads, and I read the whole thing from cover to cover. And I just trusted that my unconscious mind would get the hint. And sure enough, at four o'clock one morning, I woke up and I had an idea for a ballad. And I started to write it right there in, in bed at four o'clock in the morning, which was really inconvenient because I wanted to go back to sleep because I had work <laughs> the next day. But, you know, sometimes we need to suffer for our art. So, so I think that would be my first thing is just read a load of the, the thing that you want to write. And if that feels like a chore, then maybe that's a sign you should be writing something else because you, know, you can't write something unless you really love that form, whether it's a, a detective story or you know, romantic fiction or science fiction or whatever. You've got to be able to geek out on it. And, and if not, then ask yourself, well, what do I want to geek out on, even if that doesn't seem such a, a sensible choice? Um, and then the other end of the spectrum is getting really good feedback. And I mean, from somebody who really knows what they're doing. Um, in my case, I've been really lucky to have Mimi Calvati, one of our most distinguished poets over here as a mentor and a teacher for many years. I've also made it my business to get feedback from other poets, editors, um, publishers, you know, on occasion, because you've got to be able to calibrate what you think you've put on the page with what other people are picking up from the page. And it's not always the same thing, you know, because very often I, you know, for instance, I would take a poem and 
Mimi would critique it and I would say, no, but what I meant was, and she said, that's all very well, but that's not what you wrote. <laughs> In my mind, it was all there on the page. And, and she got me to realize, no, you, you haven't quite got there yet. So I think those would be my two main things. And then in between, you've got all kinds of different schools of thought about how you get started and whether you should be a, a plotter or a pantser or, um, you know, how free or how loose you should be in the process. But I, th I think if you do those two things, then you probably can't go too far wrong. Um, and also don't be afraid, you know, the bit in the middle, don't be afraid to, to do it your way. Like for instance, I'm no good with prompts based on content, but I discovered that I can write starting from the form end of the stick. So, so that's what I do. That's good. Well, what poetry collections or novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Hmm. Let's see. Well, right now I'm looking on my desk. I have just finished reading um, Malika Booker's collection, Pepperseed. Um, she was on the podcast recently. That's a really wonderful um, collection based on her experience as being a British writer, but she's also got Guyanese and Trinidadian parentage. So she's got a real window from British culture to the Caribbean and back. Um, I'm also just starting um, Dana Joya, 99 Poems New and Selected, which is um, one of your uh, really top American contemporary poets. And it's very much in my wheelhouse. He really, he really knows what to do with meter and rhythm and rhyme, which is, it's, it's not quite a lost art, but it's a bit of a minority pursuit these days. And I'm very much in favor of that. So by the way, if anybody is still hesitant about, you know, what's going on in contemporary poetry and, and, and does it really relate to life, to my life in the way that maybe fiction does, Google Dana Joyer's uh, article for The Atlantic called Can Poetry Matter, where he has quite a, a provocative take on, on what went wrong with poetry, particularly in the States, when it became quite um, the preserver of the academy and creative writing classes. Um, so, and he's got very, makes a very passionate case that poetry should be part of everybody's reading, everybody's cultural life, the way novels and movies and, and, and music are. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your podcast and your poetry? The podcast is called A Mouthful of Air, which I'm told is a great title, and it should be because I stole it from Yates. Um, and you can find that on the usual podcast platforms, A Mouthful of Air, or online at amouthfulofair.fm. If anybody's interested in my poetry, you can find me at markmcguinness.com. And that's Guinness spelt like the drink, G-U-I-N-N-E-S-S. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Mark McGuinness, poet and host of the podcast, A Mouthful of Air. Check out his poems and go subscribe to his podcast today. And Mark, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you very much. I've, I've really enjoyed it. You've got some great questions. So thank you, Jeff. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. 
In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.